0: shouldn't have taken a pandemic to know that food workers are responsible for feeding everyone. Calling food workers heroes doesn't do anything for the working conditions and the wages that workers have in those jobs.
1: I'm Tiffany Patton, and this is Real Food Reads, the book club and podcast from Real Food Media, where we read the latest books at the intersection of food, politics, and culture, and talk with the authors themselves. Our book of the month is Bite Back, People Taking on Corporate Food and Winning. Edited by Saru Jayaraman and Catherine DeMaster, this powerhouse anthology shares the stories and strategies of organizations and movements who are going up against large corporations and winning. Make sure you check out the book to learn about the fights for seeds, health, food sovereignty, and more. We're focusing on one chapter today, Food Workers vs. Food Giants, written by our friends Joanne Lowe and Jose Oliva co-founders of the Food Chain Workers Alliance. Jose, who is now the Campaign's Director at Heal Food Alliance, is joining me to talk about labor before and during the pandemic. Jose, you have a long history of advocating for workers' rights. What was that moment or series of moments that pulled you to do this work?
0: Yeah, I don't know that there was a single moment. My grandfather was tapped way back in the 1940s in Guatemala to be the vice minister of agriculture for the first ever democratically elected government of Guatemala. Part of his job was to do a mapping of all of the arable land in the country. What he produced informed a land redistribution program that actually triggered a CIA coup in 1954. Wow because what he found was that over two-thirds of all the arable land in Guatemala were owned by a uh, U.S.-based company, which is now known as Chiquita Bananas. Back then, it was called the United Fruit Company. Right. And so they decided, the government back in the 40s in Guatemala, decided that they needed to nationalize that land. And that didn't mean taking the land from Chiquita, it meant paying them the market rate for chunks of the land and then redistributing that land to landless peasants. And that was in 1952 when the land redistribution program began. And then 1954, uh, the Eisenhower administration overthrew the government of Jacobo Arbenz in Guatemala. And that was what triggered a civil war that lasted 36 years, that Killed over two hundred thousand Guatemalans and made my family flee along with about a million other people. So, so I think that's where my roots, <laughs> where my roots are in terms of food justice and worker justice. Yeah, I don't think there's a, a single moment other than the generational trauma of <laughs> of being part of that legacy.
1: Wow, thank you. I don't for some reason I didn't know that backstory. <laughs> thank you for sharing that. So you wrote a chapter in the book Bite Back called Food Workers Versus Food Giants with Joanne Lowe, your co-founder and former co-director of Food Chain Workers Alliance. And a sentence that really stands out in that chapter is, today it is almost impossible for the typical U.S. resident to procure a meal that does not involve some form of labor exploitation. I'm sure some people are wondering. Like, how is that possible if I'm out here buying fair trade bananas or eating at a restaurant that adds gratuity into the bill? So can you explain like how it's possible for um, most of our meals to involve some form of labor exploitation?
0: Yeah. I mean, the first thing that I think folks need to understand is that there are five major things sectors in the food system. Altogether, before the pandemic, they added up to 21 and workers. Uh, so it's the largest employment sector in the US economy, larger than healthcare, right? Larger than the Pentagon. And the five distinct sectors are production, and that's farm workers, farming, processing, transportation and warehousing, And then on the consumption end, both grocery stores and restaurants. And each one of those five sectors has millions of people that work in it, right? Really, when we talk about the food system, we're talking about all five of those things aggregated. Uh, So any meal that you have, no matter how much food you grow yourself, (laughs) uh, if you drink a cup of coffee with it, that coffee came from somewhere. And it isn't just the coffee workers, right? So it might be fair trade coffee, great. That makes sure that the workers in Colombia or Guatemala or wherever the, the coffee was grown are doing okay, but it doesn't account for the transportation workers or the processing workers. Or if you're drinking that coffee in a coffee shop, those uh, workers that served that coffee, right, and prepared it for you unless you have the ability to trace every single one of those five sectors, the likelihood is very high that along the line of that supply chain, people's rights were being violated. Uh, And that's not just a statement based on a hunch, (laughs) right? Or like my own personal belief. Uh, It's based on research that we've done and that we've published out to the public, right? The latest report that people can read is called No Piece of the Pie. It is now 4 years old. It was published in 2016, but it still holds water. It still demonstrates sort of the uh, complexity of the supply chain and how exploited workers are along the entire chain, right? Understand that there is problems with this current food system and let's change it. <laughs> right? Let's focus right. all of our energy on shifting this food system to a food system that is good for the environment good for workers good for animals right that that actually puts the planet in front of profits right like that's the bottom line Mm -hmm. Um, I think the idea that we can just remove ourselves from the system is a little misguided and, and frankly ignores the reality of where we're at as a society right we live in a complex society with millions of people living in vast cities together, um, that's not going to go away, right? There, there's no uh, quick fix to that, other than some major horrible apocalyptic <laughs> potentials, right? They're, we're here, we're here for good, right? And the, the idea is really, how do we shift that food system that we have so that it is a good food system rather than one that's exploiting people and Exploiting the land.
1: Mm-hmm. There's a, a lot of things that make this exploitation possible, but one of them is corporate consolidation or the creation of these food giants. So, how does corporate consolidation exacerbate worker exploitation?
0: In a lot of ways, I think the biggest thing that people think of when they think of monopolies or food giants, right, they think of these large multi sector corporations like Monsanto and maybe Chiquita, right, and and Mm -hmm. Tyson and some of the other uh, names, household names, right, that we hear and consume every day. But what people don't know is how little of that market is actually available and operating uh, by smaller players, smaller businesses. And when I say smaller, I'm not even talking less than 50 employees. I'm talking less than 500. (laughs) Um, It's such a small percentage of the market. And in every single one of those sectors, whether it's the meat sector, where three major corporations, right, Tyson, JBS, and Smithfield control about 80% of the market, uh, or whether we're talking about food service management, right? Where also there's three giants, right? uh, Compass Group, Sodexo, and Aramark. um, And they control 60% of the market. You know, you're really talking about corporations that employ tens of thousands and sometimes hundreds of thousands of people. And that those people who are employed by those companies are really thought of only as a resource for cheap labor, essentially, right? And how they can process or produce the food that they're making as quickly and as cheaply as possible is really what the mindset in most of these companies is. You know, when when people talk about how giant corporations are evil, um, I don't disagree with that. Yeah, sure. They have, you know, nefarious uh, processes. They lobby Congress uh, to lax labor laws and uh, to lax environmental restrictions and, and so forth and so on. So they do nefarious things for sure. But the reality is that a lot of these companies don't think of themselves that way, right? They think that they're doing a good thing and they really believe it, right? When you talk to folks who work there, other than the folks who are on the front lines, other than the workers who feel the direct impact and the brunt force of these corporations, the folks who work in the corporate office, they think they're doing a good thing, right? They think they're feeding America. They think they're doing something that other people don't have the expertise to do or don't have the the means or the resources to do. So the education on how these companies behave is not just for our consumption as the general public who eats their food, But it's really for them, it's it's really about getting them to wrap their heads around what their behaviors are and how they impact communities, how they actually have a long history of impacting everything from foreign policy to local
1: nutrition and everything in the middle. I feel like this paints a bleak picture of what's happening for food workers, <laughs> also how, like how big food companies see themselves, but there's also so much other stuff going on, right? Like food workers have been organizing for a long time to create better conditions for themselves, and you know all about that. So what are some of the strategies that food workers have been using to bite back against corporate food, and what are some of the wins?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. There, there's definitely a lot of uh, bleakness and negativity to identify and address. And I do think it's important to, to identify it and to understand it really well, because it's only through the thorough understanding of how our food system works that we're going to be able to dismantle it and create a new one. And I do think it's an and both scenario. I don't think it's just about fighting against these giant corporations. I do think that if we are going to dismantle this food system, we need to have another food system to point to, to say, this is a better way to go, right? This is actually a more effective and environmentally sound and worker-friendly proposition for our food system. With that in mind, I, I want to point to a couple of examples. The big one that I think you know about, Tiffany, is called the Good Food Purchasing Policy. Mm-hmm. And the DFPP uh, has been pretty successful in shifting entire food systems in several places. We first developed the idea, my former co-director of the Food Chain Workers Alliance, uh, Joanne Lowe, served on a committee, chaired the, the LA Food Policy Council and served on a committee to develop this idea that was really groundbreaking at the time. Um, And the idea was essentially just to use procurement of public institutions as a lever to change the food system to make the food system better. And what they came up with was these five value categories that basically define what good food is right and the five value categories are human health and nutrition environmental sustainability animal welfare local economies and a valued workforce Uh, and if you as a company are abiding by all five of those value categories then you're producing good food right if you are doing four of the five Your food is okay, but it's
1: not good. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And what does it mean to have a valued workforce?
0: Well, a valued workforce is critical in this because the vast majority of the people who work in this country work in the food system. 21 and a half million, I said that earlier. And essentially, in order for a company to have good worker standards, they have to do three things. They have to first and foremost abide by the law, uh, which sounds... Pretty small and ineffective, but you know, in the food system, I don't know if you've ever worked in the food system. I worked in the restaurant industry for many, many years, and it was not unheard of. It was actually pretty common that we were shorted on our paychecks or that people were sexually harassed uh, on the floor by both customers, coworkers, and managers, that people were basically sent away if there was an accident, right? Uh, slips, falls, cuts, all kinds of things. Uh, so the restaurant industry is not unique, right? It's, it's really just a part of the food system uh, that demonstrates how uh, horrible conditions are in the food system. And so if you think about who's in charge of enforcing the laws that are supposed to be protecting workers in, in the workplace, we have the Department of Labor, we have OSHA, we have the Equal Employment Opportunities Commission, and the numbers there are dire, right? Their budgets have been cut tremendously over the course, especially over the course of the last four years. So much so that there aren't enough inspectors, OSHA inspectors, for instance, to levy any citations against companies who are breaking the law. During COVID, over 50,000 meatpacking workers have contracted COVID in their workplaces, and two companies have been cited two right that's an insane number if you think about 50,000 workers hundreds of them dying and only two citations and each of those citations are the, the total amount is less than $50,000
1: that's wild that's like pennies to them
0: yeah at $15,000 Citation against Smithfield. (laughs) Um, You know, it's nothing. It's not even a slap on the wrist, right? So, anyway, so workers are really in the best position to think about what that new food system ought to look like. And in the good food purchasing policy, there are these three levels that a company has to demonstrate, right? The first one is abiding by the law. So, it really just means doing those basic things like paying the minimum wage providing health and safety protections for workers and not discriminating against workers because of their race or gender or uh, nationality, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then the second layer of the second level above that is that the company is signed up for a some kind of certification program, right? There's so many, of uh, a vast number of them Uh, some of which are no good, right? But the ones that are good have workers directly in the uh, implementation process, right? So the workers are the ones who are directly and periodically, not just once, right? But periodically making sure that the company is actually doing what they claim they're doing vis-a-vis paying workers higher than minimum wage or that kind of thing. And then the third level and, I think to me, this is really the only way you know for sure that uh, your food is coming from a place that respects workers' rights, is um, if workers have a union or if it's a worker-owned cooperative, right? And if workers have a union, they have a union contract, which by law means that workers can file grievances if something in the contract is not happening and it also means that the company can be held accountable under law, right, for breaking any of the clauses of that contract. Not just having a union and just being in the union doesn't mean that you have a great workplace, right? Workers have to be actively engaged in enforcing that contract and making sure that the contract is being followed by the company. But it gives workers a tool that they don't have otherwise, right? If you're not in a company that has a union, there is no recourse. So that that's the key, I think, right? Is making sure that as many workers in our food system have unions, as many workers that want unions have access to having one. Obviously that's not an easy thing. Uh, most employers fight workers when workers decide that they want to organize a union. But there are definitely ways for people to do it. So my biggest piece of advice, I guess, if you want to call it that, for, for folks who want to organize a union, who are in workplaces where you and one more person are interested in uh, organizing a union, is just talk to your local labor counselor.
1: I want to talk about the pandemic. A phrase that we've heard over and over again since the start of the pandemic is essential worker. And essential workers, many of them work in like crucial service roles across industries are being talked about like heroes, but their working conditions tell a different story. They're underpaid, overworked, and without any safety nets. What's your take on people being labeled as essential workers? And how does that play into the fight for just food? Or does it play into it at all?
0: Mm -hmm. I love that question. Yeah, so the categorization of essential worker was not shocking to us, right? We knew, of course, all along that food workers are essential. Without them, we wouldn't eat. (laughs) Plain and simple, right? (laughs) Shouldn't have taken a pandemic to understand that, to know that food workers are responsible for feeding everyone. That being said, right, just uh, calling food workers heroes and categorizing them as essential um, doesn't do anything for the working conditions and the wages that workers have in those jobs. Uh, That's the irony of this sector, right? That even though it plays the most, or arguably one of the most crucial roles in our society. Uh, maybe healthcare is on par with it, but other than that, right, there's, there's very few other sectors that actually are responsible for keeping us alive, that even though they play that role, their wages are the lowest, right? And again, this is not just my own hunch. <laughs> this is based on data that we uncovered doing research, right, that the median wage for food workers is $10 an hour. And these are the folks that are literally putting food on our table. Uh, And it's not just wages, right? Wage theft is much more likely to happen to someone that works in the food system than someone that does not. Food workers are five times more likely to access SNAP and other public food benefits uh, than people in other industries, right? So you're talking about people who feed us are literally unable to feed themselves. Right. That's not just a travesty in the midst of this pandemic. Uh, but it's also a slap in the face, right? Like you're calling someone a hero, but then they can't feed themselves, right? <laughs> You're calling them essential, uh, but you're forcing them to go to work and get sick, right? You're not giving them giving them the protective equipment and the tools that they need to make sure that they don't get COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's nice words, but that's all it is. In some ways, we think at least that the words are being levied towards us as a way of pacifying people, as a way of saying, oh, look, they're the heroes. Now, don't ask for anything more, right? (laughs) You're a hero. You're doing what you have to do. Go out there and uh, give your life so that we could have steak. (laughs) So yeah, so I, I think, you know, in the midst of the pandemic, what we've noticed is that there's three industries that are most directly impacted by the pandemic. The first one is the biggest one, the restaurant industry. Before the pandemic, there were 13 million workers in the restaurant industry. We think that number is down to about 7 million now. So it's mass unemployment in the industry. Very few people who are still working have livable wages or any benefits at all. Before the pandemic, it was already dire. Less than 10% of workers in the restaurant industry had paid sick days. (laughs) Now it's even worse, right? And you're talking about a pandemic, right? And you're talking about a sort of a policy paid sick days that should be understood as essential, right? Like something everyone should have. But in part, restaurant workers don't have it because there is this legacy of slavery, which by the way, that legacy of slavery is in every sector of our food system because our food system was founded on slavery, right? The plantation owners in the South that were the large food growers in the 1700s and 1800s depended on slave labor. And when we finally got rid of slavery, at least legally speaking, we didn't get rid of the systems that actually gave power to the people who enslaved others. And so what we ended up with were laws that protect the plantation owners rather than the former slaves, right? So when the Fair Labor Standards Act and the National Labor Relations Act, the two large pieces of legislation that protect workers in this country were passed in the 1930s, they excluded huge sectors of the food system, namely tipped workers in the restaurant industry, and farm workers, all farm workers. So if you're a farm worker, you don't have to be paid minimum wage. If you're a farm worker, you could be 13 years old and working the field 12 hours a day. Uh, There's no child labor protections against that. Uh, If you're a farm worker, there's no overtime. You can work more than 40 hours a week and not be paid time and a half or time over 40. All of those things have been excluded because of this deal that the former plantation owners cut with Congress in the 1930s.
1: Can you speak a little bit to the demographics of who is working in the food system? Because I feel like that plays a huge part in the whole legacy of slavery and those practices being um, carried on today.
0: The the literal legal evisceration of Black people from labor protections is one Clear, very visible way in which this manifests itself. Uh, Now, some people will argue there's nothing in any of those pieces of legislation that you mentioned that excludes black people. But all you have to do is go back and look at who were the farm workers when these laws were enacted, and you'll know what they meant, (laughs) right? It was about excluding black people. It was about carving out a special class of people that was based on race that allowed for people to be exploited, right? That's the bottom line of why in the Fair Labor Labor Standards Act and in the National Labor Relations Act, there's an exclusion of specific industries. So that's one way. The other way is also that when we started looking at how the food system was gonna grow and how we were going to not just feed ourselves but make a lot of money growing food, two things emerged. One was the ideal labor market. The only way that these giant food corporations were going to be able to grow and make a lot of money was to exploit huge swaths of workers. This coincided with the Great Migration, right? And people moving north, Black people moving north from the south. And it created a sort of labor crisis for a lot of these large corporations. And so they began to import workers, right? And this is the origins of the Bracero program uh, of the 1940s, for instance, was that they they started to bring in Mexican workers, Filipino workers, Chinese workers to replace the Black workers that had moved north, right? And those workers, the Mexican, Filipino, Chinese workers, worked under the same conditions that Black workers worked under and were paid the same amount, if not less in some cases, than what Black workers were making before they moved north. The reason that that system fell apart wasn't because there was some renaissance of, uh, of understanding of how we were exploiting people it fell apart because there were enough workers who were organizing to essentially bring down that whole system, right? Some will argue that that system still exists today in the form of guest worker programs, the H2A and the H2B programs. And they're right, right? Those programs are a direct descendant. They're the grandson of the original Bracero programs. But those programs are, again, intended to be racialized, right? They're intended to bring in workers from specific countries, right? And <laughs> it's not Europe, I'll tell you that, right? It's, it's uh, Latin America and, and Asia, and in some cases, Africa. And they're tagged to do specific work, right? Agricultural work, that's what H2A stands for. And so that's the legacy of, of slavery today. We see it also in the restaurant industry. We see it in the meatpacking industry, right? Meatpacking is really interesting. You have three major animals, right? The pork, beef, and poultry. Pork is about 60% union density. That means about 60% of the workforce in pork processing plants have a union, uh, which means conditions are okay in most of those places. They're not great, but they're okay. Beef is up to 80%. What those two industries have in common is that the majority of workers in those industries are white.
1: Fascinating.
0: And then you go to poultry, and poultry is less than one third union density. And guess who works in the poultry, (laughs) in the poultry plants, right? It's predominantly people of color, predominantly women. Now it's becoming more diverse immigrants, but it was at one point almost. Sixty percent immigrants from Latin America and now it's refugees from Africa, immigrants from Latin America and Asia and other folks. Right. That is a direct descendant of slavery as well Uh, and just institutional racism. Right. Not not just slavery, but the broader, (laughs) the broader concept of institutional racism in this country.
1: So you and Joanne start this chapter by sharing the story of um, Maria Gonzalez, whose real name was being withheld, who works at Tyson Foods. And Maria, along with many other workers, experienced a series of workplace violations. Now, Tyson Foods and other large meatpacking companies have been making a lot of headlines since the pandemic began, and most of those headlines aren't great for the companies. What narrative has the PR offices of Tyson and those other big meatpacking companies been spinning since the pandemic? And how does that differ from what's actually happening?
0: Mm -hmm. Tyson, in particular, has been an egregious bad actor in the food system. Maria's story is a good example of this, right? She was working in a poultry plant in Arkansas. Uh, There was a chemical spill. And instead of being evacuated, all the workers were told just to stay in their work stations, continue to work while all the office workers evacuated, who happened to be white. And the workers on the line happened to be predominantly Latina women, right? Hours into this, people started to feel sick. A couple of workers, including Maria, fainted. And they finally decided that, that they just couldn't continue to work this way, uh, which is a testament to the power of organizing, right? Tyson never told the workers what the chemicals were. It was covered in the paper. There was a ton of news on it. Uh, but Tyson essentially said, you know, this was this was not their fault. There was nothing they could have done to prevent it, even though we know that they cut corners in every way. Uh, and that that's probably, I don't know for sure, but probably what happened and what precipitated this chemical spill, right? That they were just trying to save money and they get the shoddiest, cheapest materials. And that's how a spill like this happened. The Tyson brand to the outside world is this, you know, pristine, uh, we take care of our people, our, our workers come first, like they literally say that, right? Their brand image is trying to be this worker-friendly image. And in reality, they're doing these horrible things to workers, right? And including one thing that I, I want to make sure that that we cover here, Tiffany, is this no fault point system that Tyson JBS Smithfield they all have it which essentially if you don't have a union if there's no union in your plant means that if you're sick and you stay home it's no fault of your own but it's also not the, the company's fault you get points taken out there's a 10 point in some cases 10 points in some cases it's five points in some cases it's even three right but The idea is that because it's nobody's fault, you accrue those points. And then if you accrue three of them, you could be fired.
1: Oh, my God.
0: And that is still in place in these companies, even though they've instituted in some cases, not in every case, but in some cases, they've instituted some additional paid sick days because of COVID-19, or in some cases, they've instituted ways for workers to you know, take care of family members and leave the plant if they have to, if a family member becomes sick. Still, right, workers get points deducted if they do that, if they take advantage of any of those new, <laughs> new programs that the companies themselves develop. And so it's a mixed message, right? You're on the one hand telling workers, oh, we want you safe. We want to make sure that you don't infect other people or infect yourself by coming to work if you're sick. On the other hand, they're telling workers that if you do miss work, that you will get points deducted. And so a lot of workers, including folks that I've talked to myself, would rather go to work even if they have symptoms uh, or in some cases they've been tested positive and they're asymptomatic. And they'll go to work because they don't want points taken off, right? They can, who wants to lose their job? <laughs> that to me is a critical um, piece to talk about and, and and to point out the hypocrisy, right, of these companies who are saying they care so much about workers and yet they have these no-point, no-fault point systems in their company policies.
1: So you, um, as part of Heal Food Alliance and food chain workers and over 120 other organizations have filed a Title VI complaint against Tyson Foods and JBS. Can you tell us a little bit about this complaint?
0: Yeah, so it's a complaint filed with the USDA. And Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1963 essentially says, I'm paraphrasing, this is not what the actual law says, but it's what it means, that any company that gets taxpayer money cannot break the law in terms of discrimination. Right? They can't discriminate against people because of their gender or race or national origin or religion. And if you look at Tyson or JBS or any of the other large uh, poultry and meat processing companies, what you will find is that management is 99% white. All of their CEOs are white. All of their CEOs are white men. And the vast majority of the frontline workers are people of color, right? Like, so you walk into a plant, for instance, in Missouri, and what you see when you first look inside the plant, whether it's kill floor or whether it's the processing lines, what you see are predominantly immigrants from Africa, Latin America, and uh, some Asians. And that is not a coincidence, right? Like, it it isn't a coincidence that those are the workers and that management is white. That's not reflective of the U.S. population. It's not even reflective of the population of Missouri, right, where they are. And so that is a very purposeful policy decision on the part of Tyson and JBS and the other large corporations to recruit people of color to work on the front lines because they deem them disposable while um, you know, recruiting mostly white people to their management ranks. And that is the basis of this complaint, right? The, the basis is you are creating disparate treatment. You're treating people of color differently than you're treating white people. You're giving white people the ability to go home and work from home. Obviously, people who work on the processing lines can't work from home and you're giving white people the ability to protect themselves against the virus, and you're not doing that for the people of color. Uh, So it is a blatant disregard for how how people of color are treated versus white people in
1: these companies. Okay, so we have a few minutes left, and I just want to ask you a final question. What people-powered campaign is inspiring you right now?
0: Mm. Oh my God, there's so many. So I do think that What people are doing around the country to improve their food systems is really inspiring. Good food communities, coalitions all over the country have been successful in in passing GFPP and including racial equity in those policies. Uh, I'm also really inspired by the Real Meals campaign that leverages student power and producer especially BIPOC producers, Black, Indigenous, and people of color producers to demand that Airmark and Sodexo and Compass Group live up to their promises of buying from BIPOC producers and, from be, and also their promises to being environmentally sustainable and being good to workers and being good to animals, right? Like all these promises seem to be empty promises, but it's inspiring to see how students and producers and other, other folks in the community have band together to hold these corporations accountable.
1: To learn more about meat processing workers and their organizing efforts for safety and racial justice in the midst of COVID-19, listen to the premiere episode of our sister podcast, Foodtopias. Episode one of Foodtopias, Laboring in a Pandemic features Axel Fuentes of Rural Community Workers Alliance and Christina Spock of Food Chain Workers Alliance. Thanks for listening to Real Food Reads. I'm Tiffany Patton and my co-producer is Tanya Kirsten. Our music is by Moonhooch, and this podcast is edited by Asal Asanipour. This was just one chapter of many and bite back people taking on corporate food and winning. To learn more about the book or our guest, Jose Oliva, visit realfoodmedia.org. To listen to Real Food Reads or the brand new Foodtopias, Subscribe to Real Food Media wherever you get your podcasts.